everyone, welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. Back in the day when I ran teen programs at a Jewish summer camp, we called our unit Chalutzim, the pioneers. Today we're talking about some of the real Chalutzim, the early pioneers of Israel who came to settle, farm, and transform their Jewish spirits. In about the year 1906, a young Zionist was running around various gatherings in Russia of Jewish socialist workers when he pulled himself up short and had a sudden thought. Why am I here and not there? He asked himself. Why are we all here and not there? It was very meta. This young Russian was named Yitzhak Benzvi, and the there he spoke of was, of course, Palestine. He wanted to be where Jewish life was being renewed and where the Jewish national homeland was being built. And he wanted to make sure that both those things were informed by the socialist principles of Jewish labor by Jewish workers being done within a progressive society organized around agriculture. Yitzhak Ben-Zvi came to Palestine a year later, in 1907, and went on to be a hugely influential player in the Yishuv, the Jewish community in pre-state Israel. He helped develop and lead many of the Yishuv's most important pre-state institutions, and in the 1950s and 60s, served as Israel's second president. He was a leader of something I talked about a few episodes back and a little bit last time too, labor Zionism, one of the major branches of our Zionist tree. Labor Zionism has a deep ideological tradition that traces back to the socialist vision of Jewish workers in Russia and Eastern Europe. It was the dominant tree branch of Zionism for decades in Israel. And its most visible manifestation, which we've all heard about and really ought to know about, is the kibbutz. That's today's topic. I'm Jason Harris. And this is Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. One of my favorite parts about birthright trips is getting to stay on a kibbutz. I have a few favorites. Tsuba, outside Jerusalem, overlooks a beautiful valley beneath the ruins of an old crusader castle. Kibbutz Daganya, at the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee, is historic and has a chocolate store. We'll come back to that one. And Kibbutz Amiad, in the northern Galilee, has a winery and an extremely friendly golden retriever who loves me when I visit. They are all of them relaxing, tranquil, mellow places to spend Shabbat and a few nights away from the intensity of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv or the searing heat of the Negev Desert. It all sounds so lovely. But here's how an early pioneer described kibbutz life, as told in Ari Shavit's book, My Promised Land. It's either day or night here. Hard labor at the noon of day and ideological debates into the night. A loving family, a soft caress of a mother's hand, the stern but encouraging look of a loving father, all the things that make life bearable are not here. Even well into the 1930s, writes the Israeli scholar Howard Sacher, kibbutz life was grim and colorless, harsh and demanding in labor and sacrifice, in lodgings, diet, recreation. Some of these kibbutzim, I'm sorry to say, haven't made great strides in the diet department. Although spaghetti night is always appreciated, schnitzel night tends to wear pretty thin after 12 birthright trips. And that searing heat of the Negev also existed where the early kibbutzim were built in the north. Except, unlike the desert, these kibbutzim also had swamps, which bred malaria and typhus and other nasty diseases. 
The work was backbreaking and unrelenting, for everything had to be done by hand. There was little in the way of machinery and almost nothing in terms of infrastructure. And on top of all that hard labor were those ideological debates the pioneers spoke about. Because the kibbutz was as much an expression of a particular socialist ideology as it was about the need for agriculture. To be on a kibbutz wasn't just to sign up for a life of labor. It was to sign up for an entire way of life. The genius of the kibbutz system is that it came about through two reasons. Two reasons that complemented each other at this moment of Jewish history. The first reason I talked about last week. The Jews who came to Palestine in the first Aliyah, that initial wave of immigration in the last 20 years of the 1800s, were largely unable to build a functioning agricultural economy. They farmed individual plots of private land and sometimes tried grouping them together into small communities called Moshavot. But these private farms weren't viable. They weren't really able to ever turn a profit to sustain an economy. And so these first Aliyah communities had to be supported by Jewish philanthropic funds from abroad most famously from Baron Rothschild, whom I talked about last week. So even though those first Aliyah immigrants came for the purpose of agricultural settlement, the few who ended up staying still struggled mightily just to get by. As the 1800s turned into the 1900s, the Jews created institutions like the Jewish National Fund to purchase land and support the economic development of the Yishuv. And when it came to these agricultural communities, more advanced thinking about how to achieve economic independence came into focus. They realized that while they didn't have the individual means to develop their farms, such as access to more capital or all the necessary tools, they could gather together to maximize all their resources under the umbrella of a coordinated land purchase from the Jewish National Fund. Kibetz is a Hebrew root word meaning to gather or collect as a group, and so a new collective farming community was born, the kibbutz. These kibbutzim, these collectives, would pool their resources for the inputs and collectivize the profits to make sure that investments stayed within the kibbutz. In other words, the kibbutz came about as a matter of economic necessity. It was a natural evolution, a better system than the unsustainable private farms of the Moshavot. So economic necessity was the first reason. The second reason was socialism. Beginning in the late 1800s, Jews in Eastern Europe, especially Russia, found themselves attracted to the ideas of socialism. As entertaining as a lengthy discourse on the origins of socialist thought and its many variations would be for all of us, I'm sure, I'm just going to assume you've at least heard of the basics somewhere back in high school or college. You know, Karl Marx and the social failures of the Industrial Revolution and the ideal of the worker crushed under the boot of the oppressive capitalist order, that kind of stuff. And in Russia, no one suffered more under the system than the Jews. We've already seen how the Jews lived under this crushing oppression, both physical persecution and economic strangulation under the czars. They were then often very open to the ideas of class struggle and the seeming promise of socialist and communist ideology to create an equality amongst all workers, which in theory would include the Jews. Around the turn of the century, at the same time that the Zionist movement was developing, Eastern European Jews formed their own organizations to take part in the socialist movement. And from the outset, the socialists and the Zionists, they were often at odds. Zionism thought the socialists was too utopian, too capitalist, too much relying on rich Jews for support, too dependent on the approval of both the Ottoman rulers and the governments of Europe. 
Jews should be supporting the socialist revolution here in Russia, not over there in Palestine. Things got really heated. Howard Sacker records one Jewish socialist screaming to a Zionist supporter, Pack your belongings. Turn your back on our life, on our struggle, on our joys and sorrows. But others saw a way to merge the two ideals of socialism and Zionism. Nachman Serkin, a Russian socialist thinker, thought that actually Zionism needed socialism to be successful. A Jewish state, he said, would have to be built on a platform of social justice and equality, on a secular culture that both rejects religious Judaism and the failures of modern life. The Jews should leave Russia, he said, and head to Palestine, because on their own territory and in their own sovereign homeland, the Jewish working classes could have their own socialist revolution and ensure its success. We're going to replace traditional Judaism, he said, with a whole new religion of socialist Jewish Zionist revolutionary principles in Eretz Yisrael. With this, Nachman Serkin founded the labor Zionist branch of our Zionist tree. And it will be the dominant tree branch for much of the rest of Israeli history, responsible not only for much of Israel's founding ideology, but also for many of its founding fathers and later leaders. From labor Zionism, we will get most of the powerful institutions that built the Jewish homeland, and then, when the state was declared in 1948, turned into official government agencies. The kibbutz was the vehicle for implementing the socialist Zionist vision. It was the practical expression of the revolutionary ideology that Jewish immigrants were bringing into Palestine. I've mentioned before, I think, that what I think is the particular genius of Theodore Herzl and the Zionist movement was taking this 2,000-year-old spiritual idea about the return to Zion and make, mating it to what the Zionists saw as the practical needs of the Jewish people, and then giving that a political expression so that a Jewish homeland could become a reality. And I see something similar happening with the kibbutz movement. You have these Jewish socialists developing the idea of a collective farm to meet both ideological needs and practical economic ones. Labor Zionism said, In a Jewish state and only in a Jewish state can Jews live normal, healthy lives and develop a community around socialist principles. We're going to build communities in which all the resources, land and buildings, profits, even education and housing, will belong to the collective, not, so one, not to one single rich owner who would reap all the benefits. Since everyone's going to work and share equally in this community, the Jews will be an example to the world of what true social justice and democracy looks like. And, at the same time, this socialist effort is going to remake the Jews. I talked about this a few episodes back, the philosophy of Aaron David Gordon, or A.D. Gordon as he's known. The labor Zionists looked at the impoverished, oppressed Jews of Eastern Europe with disdain. They need to be redeemed. And the way to do that is through the hard, physical labor of agricultural work in Eretz Yisrael. A.D. Gordon actually walked the walk. He came from a fairly well-off Orthodox family in Russia. He ran a business for decades. And unlike most of the idealistic immigrants, he didn't come to Palestine until he was already in his 40s. But he devoted himself to working the land on a settlement near the Sea of Galilee, practicing the philosophy which he believed would lead to individual and national redemption. Early in the morning, before heading out to the field, he would hunch over a Spartan desk and write by candlelight. Labor alone will heal us, he wrote, and our people can be rejuvenated only if each one of us recreates himself through labor and a life close to nature. A.D. Gordon was the spiritual leader of the labor Zionist tree branch, 
And it was his philosophy, uniting socialist principles, Zionism, and what became known as the religion of labor that informed the practicalities of kibbutz life. Now, the numbers we're talking about are small. In the pre-World War I era, there were only a few hundred pioneers living on a few scattered kibbutzim. But they were part of another wave of Jewish immigration to Palestine, talked about it last time, called the Second Aliyah. The infamous pogrom in Kishnev in 1903 and political unrest in Russia in 1905 saw around two million Jews flee Eastern Europe. Zionism only played a small role in the decision to leave, as the vast majority went to the United States seeking safety and a better life. Only around 40,000 or so went to Palestine, but most ended up leaving fairly soon, because life, as we've seen there, was enormously difficult. It was the ones who stayed who were fired up at the socialist revolution, with the ideas of personal and collective redemption through hard labor and agriculture. The second Aliyah wave took up modern Hebrew with a passion and set about building the institutions and settlements necessary for the Jewish revival. In 1909, the same year that Tel Aviv was founded on a beach outside Jaffa, 12 people, 10 men and 2 women, all in their late teens and early 20s, acquired land from the Jewish National Fund along the edge of the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They set out to develop it. They were supported by Arthur Rupin, the extraordinary leader of the practical wing of the Zionist movement who I talked about last time. The effort was terrible going. Between the heat and the malaria, the immense physical labor, they came so close to failing. But soon, a couple dozen more people showed up and fired up at the passion of gender equality, social justice, and collectivism. They turned a profit and made it viable. They called the settlement Kibbutz de Ganya, which means cornflower. It was the first kibbutz. The movement was off and running. To live on a kibbutz was to live by a set of principles. I have somehow a 1964 textbook on Israel that looks like it was written maybe for high school students or college. I'm pretty sure I must have found it as a kid in my grandparents' basement, and amazingly, I've kept it all these years, which is great because it's a gold mine of really great little bits of information. But it reveals the ideological essentials of the kibbutzim and the intellectual and moral rigors that the kibbutz members are responsible for upholding. It's really a lot. Most central was this idea of collectivism, of group responsibility for all aspects of daily life. It wasn't just that everyone performed some kind of labor on the kibbutz, but every aspect of your life was sublimated into the collective. In many kibbutzim, parents didn't directly raise their own children in their home. There was a children's house in the kibbutz where kids lived from toddler to teenager. Of course, children would see their parents every day, but for the most part, they interacted with each other under the watch of workers dedicated to childcare and teaching. Also collectivized would be any income you earned from your work, all of which would go into the central kibbutz account. If someone wanted a refrigerator, for instance, the kibbutz committee would vote whether to buy you a refrigerator. Same too if you wanted to go to college or to visit relatives in America. The kibbutz would pay for both if they voted in your favor. Connected with this principle of collectivism was the labor socialism we talked about a few minutes ago. Kibbutz meant group ownership of everything. The land, the buildings, all the equipment, the crops and the products, the income and other revenue, down even to the stapler in the main office. Which is the kind of socialist principle I can live with since mine has disappeared again. Whoever has it, I need it back. 
it says Jason on it, so it's not like you can hide. But anyway, we've got collectivism and socialism and, of course, Zionism, since the purpose here is to build a national Jewish homeland. But we also have, from the beginning of the 20th century, an ideal of gender equality. Everyone worked. Everyone contributed, regardless of sex. And everyone had a job to do. And the product of everyone's labor was shared by all. It wasn't the amount of work you did that necessarily mattered. It was how you were contributing to the collective. And so along with gender equality, you had ideas about the dignity of labor. All types of work were considered equally valuable. And if you, let's say, had a physical limitation that prevented you from the hard labor of the fields, that's okay. You simply would have an assignment that was up to your abilities. And since this was a collective in which equality of all members was valued, there was a safety net system in place to care for everyone's needs. And because everyone had an equal role with equal contributions, the kibbutz was run on a democratic system. This was real-life social democracy. Everyone sat on some kind of committee overseeing a specific aspect of the kibbutz life. Questions were brought to the committee, votes were counted, decisions were made. In all aspects, then, kibbutz members lived the ideals of social revolution, even down to their daily habits. They ate together in a communal dining hall. They all wore the same clothing. They all took turns in developing cultural and educational activities. They even had a popular folk song anthem. Anu banu livnot ulihebanot ba. We've come to the land of Israel to build and to be rebuilt here. I think this is the song. By the way, if you find all this pioneer kibbutz music cheesy, you should really see the videos I have from when we teach Israeli dancing on birthright trips. It's even better. Now, not everyone, not even all the socialists, were down for this extreme version of collective life. Even during the peak decades of kibbutz life in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, at most only about 7% of Israelis lived on a kibbutz. Those that wanted a semblance of collective socialism without all the rigor developed separate agricultural communities called moshavim. The moshav had the same idea as a kibbutz, in which a certain percentage of resources and expenses and incomes were pooled, but you had a great deal more privacy and personal property. And there was another principle that distinguished the second aliyah kibbutzim from the first aliyah independent farms. Those earlier farms employed Arab laborers, and to protect the defenseless settlements, Arab guards. Although the Jews, starting in the early 1880s, legally purchased all the land for their settlements, the Ottoman authorities and the local Arabs weren't always thrilled about it. The Ottomans did occasionally issue bans on selling land to both Jews and Christians, but the Ottoman system was so corrupt that many local landowners were happy to sell land to Jews at inflated prices. And although this meant that local Arabs would sometimes be displaced from their land, it was made up for by an increase in economic activity around Jewish settlements. And again, it's important to note that this wasn't a situation of the Jews seizing land or forcing local Arabs off. The Jews bought this land legally from Arab landowners. And again, we're talking small numbers here. Dozens or a few hundred. Not thousands. But the second Aliyah immigrants, with their socialist revolutionary ideals of labor Zionism, were explicitly against the use of Arab labor. But maybe not for the reasons you might think. It wasn't because they felt superior to the Arabs or were trying to oppress the Arabs. It's really for two reasons. 
The first is that since they believed that performing the hard labor of agricultural work was the key to individual and collective Jewish salvation, well, if you hire someone else to do it, an Arab or anyone else, you're cheating. Remember that Zionism was about remaking and renewing the old Jew into the new Jew. The whole point is for you to leave your oppressive homeland in Russia, make your way to Eretz Israel, and then transform your mind and body and your Judaism by living the socialist ideal and doing the hard work yourself. As A.D. Gordon wrote, Without the Jews doing their own labor, the land will not be ours, and we shall not be the people of the land. And the second reason is that they were trying to practice the class struggle of the socialist revolution. The whole point was to avoid creating an owner class and a labor class. The idea of having a rich Jewish landlord overseeing a lower class of Arab laborers was utterly anathema to the goals of the kibbutz movement. And so one of the features that distinguished the kibbutz movement was that they were populated solely by Jews. Now, I said there were two reasons, but there was another third reason as well for the exclusion of Arabs. These tiny and far-flung agricultural settlements were occasionally attacked by Arab bandits. Property was stolen and destroyed. Sometimes people were hurt. Now, it's important to note that these attacks were not politically motivated. This wasn't terrorism, and they weren't because the Arabs hated the Jews. They were because this was the Wild West, Palestine in the turn of the century, and banditry was ubiquitous throughout the Ottoman Empire's rural territories. But these second Aliyah immigrants, in addition to their devotion to socialist ideals, were coming out of the violent persecutions of Tsarist Russia. They had witnessed the pogroms, and they were adamant that Jews had to learn to defend themselves. So a key feature of kibbutz life was also the formation of a semi-professional Jewish guard force called Hashomer, the Watchmen. Of course, this being socialism, the Watchmen had to be collectivized as well. So where possible, the guards lived together. They spoke only Hebrew together. They started with 26 men, but soon began training others. In order to have an effective collective self-defense, all these Jewish farmers should know how to take up arms and fight. And if that citizen-soldier ideal sounds a lot like the foundational principle of today's Israel Defense Force, you are correct. This is how the IDF got started. Socialized self-defense and national solidarity. So as the first decade of the 20th century turned into the second, things in the Yishuv were humming along. Two successive waves of immigration brought several tens of thousands of Jews to Palestine, so there are about 85,000 Jews living there now. From Jerusalem to Tel Aviv and Haifa along the coast, to the agricultural colonies in the Jordan and Jezreel valleys in the east and the north, the Jews were spreading out. They were slowly but surely building an economy and mixing in revolutionary ideals of socialism, social justice, and equality. They were reviving their ancient language, Relations with the neighboring Arabs weren't always great, but they weren't too bad either. Mostly everyone got along. But then came 1914. The world went to war, and Palestine all but collapsed. The next four years were going to be tough, very tough, very violent and dangerous. But the Jewish communities in Palestine and Europe also saw an opportunity. With the right support from the right superpower at the right time, Perhaps they could make a great leap forward on the project to renew the Jewish national homeland. And they thought they had found the right European superpower. Enter the British. Talk to you next time. La, 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 la.